book of Mark, chapter 6. I'm not sure if you've been watching any of the NBA playoffs. If you haven't, you're not really missing a whole lot. But I do want to say something that I stumbled across a couple of weeks ago. Maybe it was last week. It was game 6 of the Boston Celtics versus the Miami Heat. You might have seen this game. You might have seen the clip. I like basketball. I grew up playing basketball. My dad played college basketball. And me and my three brothers all played throughout high school. And one of the things that my dad taught us and had to bring us back to over and over again was something called the fundamentals. Have you ever seen the movie Hoosiers or any basketball movies? You'll know that one of the challenges with coaches a lot of times is just getting their, getting their players to focus on the fundamentals. How to dribble, how to pass, how to shoot, things like this. How to play defense, right? Because there are so many ways you can kind of showboat and get away from the fundamentals. One of those fundamentals was blocking out. Who knows what blocking out is? Yeah. Blocking out. Getting your defender on your hip and getting between your defender and the basket so that when the ball comes off the rim, you can get the rebound. And if they try to get it, they have to go over your back and foul you, right? Well, game six of the Boston Celtics versus the Miami Heat, there was a player, last fractions of a second in the game, a player who on Miami Heat's team that did not block out. And in the last fraction of a second, one of the Boston Celtics was able to tip in a missed shot and it went in and they won the game. Doesn't matter in the end because Miami ended up winning the series. But it was a lesson in fundamentals. Repentance is in danger of falling prey the same way. The way that we think of repentance today is not that it's fundamental, but maybe that it's just optional. Repentance is in danger of going the way of the dodo and facing extinction among Christians today. Repentance as fundamental to the gospel definitely is endangered. J.I. Packer once said in his book called Rediscovering Holiness, which gives you a little bit of an idea of what he's trying to say in the book, that holiness among believers today needs to be rediscovered. It's fundamental to the Christian faith, but it needs to be uncovered, it needs to be rediscovered. He says this about repentance. What does it mean to repent? The term is a personal and relational one. It signifies going back on what one was doing before and renouncing the misbehavior by which one's life or one's relationship was being harmed. He says, in the Bible, repentance is a theological term pointing to an abandonment of those courses of action in which one defied God by embracing what God dislikes and what God forbids. It's defiance against God to not repent. The Hebrew word, he says, for repenting signifies turning or returning. To come back to. The corresponding Greek word carries the sense of changing one's mind, metanoia, that means to change one's mind, that leads to a change in direction or behavior. To change one's mind so that one changes their ways as well. Repentance means altering one's habits of thought, one's attitudes, outlook, policy, direction, and behavior just as fully as is needed to get one's life out of the wrong shape and into the right shape. 
I like the way J.I. Packer describes it. It's very biblical. J.C. Ryle describes it this way. He would call true repentance. He would distinguish true repentance from false repentance. Saying that true repentance begins with the knowledge of sin. It produces sorrow for sin. It produces confession of sin. It produces a breaking off from sin. And it produces a deep hatred for sin. How many of you Christians hate the sin in your life? I hope it's every one of you. Hate it. Hate it. These are all marks of true repentance. In short, what Ryle is saying, each stage of repentance you are dealing with, and I am dealing with in some way, sin. In every way, repentance is always dealing with sin. Acknowledging it, breaking off from it, hating it, mortifying it. But today, our challenge is to rediscover it. Mark makes it a little easier for us because he places this passage we're going to read in parentheses. It's kind of one of those things that it doesn't seem like it belongs. So open up your Bible there to Mark 6, starting in verse 14. If you'll remember, Jesus has sent his disciples, his apostles, the twelve, out. And he's given them specific instructions when they go out. He's to tell them, this is the, these are the things you're to do. Here are the things you're to take. Here are the things you're to leave home. This is what you're going to do when you get there. He's very specific. And then the end of this story, actually, about the apostles when they get back, picks up in verse 30. So now in verse 14 through 29, we have this parenthetical story. And that's going to be our text for today. Follow along with me in God's Word. I'm... I'm reading from the New American Standard. And King Herod heard of it. For his name had become well known. That is Jesus. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet. Like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account, on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed. But he used to enjoy listening to him. And a strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, up to half of the kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in haste before the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me right away the head 
of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Father, we ask, Lord, as we open up your word, God, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Understand what you are saying to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Scholars refer to this section as another one of Mark's sandwich sections. This story of King Herod is sandwiched between the sending of the 12 apostles and their return. I know I run a risk at 1130 of mentioning words like sandwich. But at least I'm not saying words like lasagna. Wait, I just said it. Sorry. It's weird, isn't it? When you see passages like this, you're like, wait a minute, what, what happened? We're learning about the apostles and then they're, they're performing miracles, they're preaching repentance, and then this story about Herod, it's almost like you might want to think that Mark or Peter, the one who's relaying all these accounts, first-hand accounts to Mark, that, that maybe he's a little ADD or just, you know, going off on a tangent. But this is not a tangent. This is, this is purposeful. What is it? Verse 14 introduces us to this concept and this person, King Herod. What in the world does King Herod have to do with this passage about Jesus sending out the apostles? And what is it that they heard of? Verse 14, the King Herod heard of it. What did he hear about? What is it that, we, that he heard about that caused him so much fear? Why did he think that Jesus the Nazarene might be John the baptizer raised from the dead. There were certainly things that were striking about Jesus' ministry. He's, he's stilling the sea. He's walking on water. He's exercising demons. He's healing people who've had diseases their entire life. Was it the miraculous work of Jesus? His divine authority? Is that why he was likened to John? Is that why... Herod was afraid that this could be John immortalized, John raised from the dead? Or were the miracles and displays of power by Jesus what made Herod think that he was John in a new light? This must be John immortalized. Why? Why would he think that? I believe Mark, under the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit, has specifically and strategically situated this passage right here for a specific purpose. Why? Look at what Mark records in verse 12, just a couple of verses before, about the apostles. They went out and preached... That people or men should what? Repent. That they should repent. It is the message of repentance that we see in verse 12. It's another one in verse 18. 
that Mark says John the Baptist delivered to Herod at the beginning of their relationship. And that was that John the Baptist said to Herod, it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. You can't live this way. What does that mean? You need to go another way. You need to stop. You need to repent. It's this message of repentance that is strikingly present in both the ministry of John and Jesus that made Herod and others think that Jesus may have been John resurrected from the dead. That's what it is. There's really nothing else common among these two figures that stands out more and might link them together in the eyes of the people than their message. And both of them were sent by the Father with the same message. Repent. Believe. The message of repentance did not even have to be specifically commanded by Jesus when he sent those 12 out. Notice the commands that he gives to them. They sound kind of odd. But never does he say, oh, and by the way, make sure you tell people to repent. He never mentions that. Because it was obvious to the disciples that they would do what Jesus did, that they would say what Jesus said. The call to repent was fundamental to Jesus' message of salvation. What might have seemed odd to them, however, was maybe the other instructions that Jesus gave. Don't take a money belt. Don't take an extra shirt, jacket. When you go into a city, if someone welcomes you into your home, stay in that home, don't go to any others. That might have me, those might have me scratching my head. But he didn't have to say, tell people to repent. It was fundamental. I love having teenagers in the house, especially when they have driver's license. Can I get an amen? I love it because we send them to the store a lot of times. It's really nice. We send them to Fry's, we send them to Walmart. Hey, we're out of X, Y, or Z. And they go and they get it. They're so awesome. But you know what we don't have? We've never had to tell them. Ever. We have never had to tell our teenagers, when you get your basket of groceries, don't leave the store until you go and pay for them at the checkout. We've never had to say that. Ever. Now, we might say some things that have them scratching their head like, Hey, when you, go, when you go to Walmart, don't park under one of the trees. You might be like, okay. And they don't know what I know, that I just washed the car. And I don't appreciate those big fat pigeons that have nothing better to, than, to do than you know what. So I might say, don't park under any trees. And they'll just be like, okay, whatever. Yeah, we'll do what you say. We don't know why. But, but there are certain things that are just, you know, fundamental and obvious. Some things... Remain unsaid. The disciples of Jesus the Nazarene preaching repentance was obvious. It was non-negotiable. It was indispensable. Essential. It was an essential component of what it meant to do ministry in Jesus' name. And it still is today. If you're a parent, if you work in a place where 
honesty and integrity has gone out the window. If you're a parent and society and even the public education system is telling you, we know better how to raise your kids than you do and your grandkids and there's a new way to think about these things, there's a new way to think about property, there's a new way to think about sexuality, there's a new way to think about education. Your message of this is what God's word says is not going to go over well. It's just not, and you know that. But it is still an indispensable component and fundamental to the gospel to call people to turn from sin and turn to God. Is our message, like John's message, is it strikingly similar to the message of Jesus' apostles here? Would we be in any danger of losing our head today? Because our message is so similar to that of Jesus? Why is this so important? Because the Jesus who preached repentance is different from the Jesus popularized in our society today. The way Jesus is presented today stands in stark contrast to John. Very few people would attach Jesus to John today. John would be labeled as an intolerant bigot. A fundamentalist. He would be charged with hate speech, probably. And if he were to claim that his message of repentance was similar to the message of Jesus, he would be dismissed as a mean-spirited extremist. All the while, Jesus would be portrayed by people as a kind culture warrior who tolerated sinful lifestyles and behaviors wherever they were manifested. Jesus would never judge sin or call anyone to repentance because as the kindness guru that Jesus is, he would never accuse anyone of actually needing to change anything about themselves. Today's 21st century postmodern Jesus not only thinks people are just fine the way they are, that he also abhors anyone who would suggest otherwise. Today's Jesus would, though undermining his own worldview and his own moral philosophy in the process, chastise his disciples if they even dared to preach that men should repent. That is, unless they reserved their message of repentance only for a particular class of people. Then it might be okay. Yes, it seems that the Jesus portrayed here in Mark's gospel is not only strikingly similar to John the baptizer, but strikingly different than some of our own conceptions of Jesus today. So who is Jesus to you? Do you have a biblical understanding of who Jesus is? How do you think Jesus feels about sin? How do you think Jesus feels about your sin? The sinfulness of our society. Would Jesus tell someone to repent of the sin of adultery? Of homosexuality? Of hatred? Of murder? Of theft? Of idolatry? And the list goes on. Would he do that? Or would he say, don't worry about your sin. Just believe in me. Just have faith 
in my message. As long as you fear me and listen to me, you see what Herod thinks about John from verse 20? Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. There are many people today that would say, I believe Jesus was a holy and righteous man. I believe he was a divine figure. Herod was afraid of him, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Tucked away. When he heard him, when he, when he heard John preach, he was perplexed. Mind blown. He used to enjoy listening to him. How many people, how many people are on the road to hell who have a pocket full of favorite preachers they love to listen to? On their way to work, on the weekend, people who've blown their minds. I love to hear that preaching. I love the message of the gospel. But who haven't repented. What would Jesus say? Don't worry about your sin, just believe in me. As long as you fear me and listen to me sometimes, and you're trying really hard sometimes, it's okay if you're willing to sin against the Father. To live in this habitual lifestyle of sin. As long as like Herod did with John in verse 20. You keep Jesus safely hidden away from others. From the rest of the compartments of your life of sinfulness. If you keep him tucked away. This is what Herod thought. Herod thought he could keep John respectfully tucked away. While disregarding John's calls to repentance. You cannot live with your brother's wife. It's against God's law. Okay, I'm going to put you in prison. Okay. I love John's preaching, just not enough to change any part of my life for God's glory. But the more Herod procrastinated repenting from his sin, the more his sin grew. You have to take a stand against sin, folks. When God reveals it in your life, that's repentance. When someone says, in love, you are in sin, you have to turn away from it and turn to God. That is true repentance. In our last church in Oklahoma, it was, a, it was a great experience for us. We were there for only about four years, but it was a tough church. Uh, the church had a lot of sin when we got there, and uh, it was dysfunctional. It was a dysfunctional church, organizationally. And my first church was a very small church, and I just didn't have a lot of experience with a larger organization. And, you know, all I really knew to do was to uh, go to the Word and go to Matthew 18 and if there's sin in the church, this is the way that we should address it. Uh, address it privately and then bring witnesses, godly men in to address it with a brother or sister in Christ. We also see this in 1 Corinthians 5, that you're to expose 
sin privately and call someone to repent of it privately because what you want is for them to repent of that sin and be restored to God, right? And then to the body. And we tried that with a member of our church who was actually on the ministry team. It was a member of the staff. And I ended up needing to bring some other brothers in the church, some, some deacons in the church together, just a few, a handful, and to uh, finally go from step one, which was to uh, approach the, the, the brother privately and now and give them time and prayerfully plead with God that he would grant repentance and restoration. And then brought a few other brothers in. And at that stage, I remember the looks of these deacons' faces and just how their countenance fell when I told them what had happened and what needed to be done and what we needed to do as leaders in the church and their, their faces, good, godly, loving men. Small town of less than 3,000 people and these men said to me, we're gonna lose friends over this. And it hurt. It hurt them. And even still after that, being confronted by friends, this man did not repent of his sin. You are going to lose friends. Not only are you going to lose friends, you're going to limit the amount of friends and family who are friendly to you when you have a biblical worldview of repentance. When you think of sin the way that God thinks of sin, it's going to limit your relationships. It's going to limit the relationships that we have as a church. Churches are already in America being persecuted because of what we not only believe and what we have tucked in our back pocket, but what we vocalize publicly about God's standards for things. John lost his head over it. You will definitely lose friends. But listen to me. Don't ever stop holding the line on biblical standards established by God. Ever. Share the truth in love, Peter says. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence, but by no means do you back off the line. Ever. You will lose friends this side of heaven, but better to go to heaven alone than to go to hell holding the hands of obstinate and prideful people who are unwilling to listen to the word of God. Hebrews 12 says that as Christians, as you run the race, remove every encumbrance that so easily entangles you. What are the things that easily entangle you? Identify them. Attack them. Remove things. If something is a problem, remove it. Get it out of your life. This is biblical repentance. Our situation today in 21st century America is not unlike the story about Herod and John. Like Herod, many who identify as Christians in America have some kind of fear of God or a nostalgic respect for a religious heritage. Like Herod, there still exists among God-fearing people today, if you call them God-fearing, at least people who know about God, there exists a certain perplexity, a certain level of intrigue with God, the spiritual realm, maybe even the church. 
Most people today who have interest in God may not share their interest in the church. But it still exists. This perplexity among our neighbors when old stories of the cross and the gospel are shared. I see people on social media all the time who are living in sin and then they say, oh, I remember that old hymn we used to sing when I was a kid or when I went to church when I was a child or I remember X, Y, and Z. That's great. That's great. Where do you stand with Jesus today? Like Herod, there still exists a perplexity among our neighbors when old stories of the cross and the gospel are shared. And the Bible is opened and read among friends. We take pride of how many Bibles lay around our houses. How many verses we memorized maybe at one time of our life. These are the ones who may still attend on Christmas and Easter. But make no mistake, in their minds, they have done to God what Herod did to John. Though they are sometimes perplexed, many times intrigued, and most of the time very respectful. They have placed God in a prison-like box. And how quickly and how calmly do they give him up at the first sight of something flashy and new? Or the first sight of pressure from society? There's a new fad, there's a new wave that you have to give into, that you have to embrace. Like Esau surrendering his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. We laugh at Esau, we mock at Esau. But there are Christians all over America who are doing the same exact thing as Esau did. So Christian, be careful not to place too much faith in government officials, in presidential candidates, etc., who appear to have some appreciation for God and the Christian faith. Who, like Herod, want to even protect and kind of archive the Christian faith. No, it's important. It's very important to us. I remember not long, it was, actually it was a long time ago, I was watching a video that my brother-in-law Jason made of his experience in Germany. There were missionaries in Germany, dressed in Germany, and he did some interviews with just some common people who had been coming to their church kind of off and on or whatever. And there's one girl sitting on the couch. You remember this, Emily? This video? There was this woman sitting on the couch and one of the questions was, what do you think about the church? Now the question was asked by a Christian, a born-again Christian who, when they think of the church, they think of the church as this, people, right? When she heard the word church, that's not what she thought of. She thought of the beautiful cathedrals that were spread across every cityscape in Germany if it survived the wars. Oh, she said, I love the church. The church is a thing of beauty. It's full of history. So rich. Our society wouldn't be what it is today without the church. And she smiled with this nostalgia about the church. And she didn't know Christ. Herod had John tucked away 
Don't tuck him away. And don't put too much faith in people who look like they're going to save the day for the church, wherever it is, because they've got God tucked away somewhere. And they appreciate Him. And they think the church is beautiful. And they love Christianity. Be careful, brothers and sisters. Especially when these people continue to foster sin and refuse to repent of sin that God has so clearly revealed in His Word. They go against the standard of God's holiness. As J.I. Packer says, they are defying God. It is not okay to defy God. You can't walk hand in hand with Jesus and defy the Father. It doesn't work that way. And so Mark has to put in this parenthetical to reinforce the truth that Jesus' message was not all about roses and grace. It was about faith and repentance. And the grace of God comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That you are granted repentance through Christ. But Jesus doesn't lower the bar. He doesn't say to the Father, your law doesn't matter. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to establish it. To uphold it. He meets all the requirements of it. But God still calls us to repent. Jesus and his gospel, brothers and sisters, will never be fully embraced by our society. Ever. It never will be. The Bible says that narrow is the way and few are they who find it. But you must continue on the narrow way. Though none go with me, I still will what? Follow. You must continue to repent of your own sin and you must refuse to water down the gospel which calls for faith and repentance. Herod is a perfect picture, a perfect example of what repentance is not. He's afraid when Jesus comes on the scene. Why is he afraid? Number one reason why he's afraid is because he put John in prison. He didn't repent of his sin the moment it was made clear to him that that's what he was doing. That was step number one of being afraid of Jesus when Jesus was on the scene. He was terrified of Christ. Step number two, he murdered John. He allowed sin to mature in his life. He kept listening to the, to the voices of the enemy saying, keep John in prison, he's fine, leave him alone, he's good. You can still live the life that you want to, keep him tucked away. He played with sin, he'd allowed it to grow, he was forced to take John's head, and now Jesus is on the scene, and his fear about who Jesus is tells us this, which is the most important thing about this passage and this message, is that Jesus' message was the same as John's, but it came with power. The difference was miracles and divine authority. That's why they said, he must be John resurrected. John, but a different John. A John who has power, but he's got the same message. This is why Herod was afraid. Repentance is not curiosity, perplexity, excitement, or intrigue about Jesus Christ. 
Repentance is trust in and obedience to Jesus Christ. A turn away from sin is a turn toward your Savior and vice versa. As John Stott puts it, the faith which receives Christ must be accompanied by the repentance that rejects sin. If you do not repent of your sins, your sins will cost you your soul. Herod took John's head off because the woman he wasn't supposed to be with influenced him to do so. She was crafty, committed, patient, and deadly. And there are movements in our society today that are just as committed and just as crafty and just as patient and just as deadly to undermine your faith. If they can get you to concede. Ultimately, after being given the opportunity to have anything she wanted in the kingdom, her request was for the beheading of a person who stood all alone among other people because he had the audacity to tell her that there were limits to her freedom. You cannot do what you want. You cannot be whoever you want. You cannot live however you want if it goes against God's law. There are some things in God's economy that you are not allowed to do. And adultery is one of them. This is what John was saying to Herod and Herodias. Folks, when you start to tell your children, your friends, your family, people that you know, that you have a relationship with, that they can't do something. I don't mean, hey, you can't, you know, you can't, Say that you hate somebody or you can't. These are things that society says you can't do. We all feel the societal pressures of those things, right? But when someone tells you you can't do that even though everybody else is doing it and everybody else says it's okay, that's going to cause some trouble. You've already been there, haven't you? Herod thought he could remain in this ungodly relationship with his brother's wife and remain in God's good graces by keeping John tucked away in prison. But sin will not sit back quietly and allow us to live duplicitous lives, will it? We can't hide from it, appease it, ignore it, or tame it. Sin is untamable. Sin is like a rabid animal. You ever been to the mall? I go to the mall and the kid's like, oh, let's go look at the animals. And you got all the animals in there. What would you do if you found this beautiful animal? It's the dog you've always wanted, you know, whatever. And they're like, yeah, okay, yeah, here's the paperwork. You know, everything's good. They got the shots, you know, blah, blah, they're really nice. Oh, by the way, they got rabies. Are you going to take it home? It's a, it's a small case. They've only bit five people in their lifetime. It's okay. No, you would not take them home. I wouldn't either. You can't take sin home as a pet either not meant for that and brothers and sisters you don't ask the one who shed his blood for your sins to tolerate your sins because you love them too much to repent of them are you fostering sin in your life what is your posture toward sin are you repentant Don't underestimate sin as if it's harmless. Deal with it. Repent of it. Christ shed his blood. 
on the cross for sins. The Bible says it clearly. He died for your sins and for my sins. He died in your place because He loves you. And He is worth forsaking everything this world has to offer. Amen. Amen.